Welcome to another Farm Fresh episode of the Cigar Social Podcast. This is episode 19. My name is Matt Richards Lanza. Thanks for joining. Today's guest here in a prestigious Smokeshed studio, a guy who grew up in a small southern town in uh, Illinois. He was only, what, one of 15 people in his high school graduating class. He has a bachelor's in science, but also majored in agricultural communications. He has been in, in a farming seed business since uh, 2009, sales rep from uh, Syngenta, and then moved to Integrated Seed, LLC. And now he is the co-founder uh, and distiller and farmer at Whiskey Acres Distillery in DeKalb, Illinois. Folks, Nick Nagley. Thanks for having me. And, uh, yeah, I'm not sure what my titles really are. I do a little bit of everything. <laughs> what, I, what, what the day demands is what I do. There's no tractor driving, distilling of our master distiller is sick. I order the toilet paper at the place. So <laughs> no, no job is, is uh, too good for me. No, and that's like, you know, perfect culture for a great company is to have people who titles are not really too relevant where everyone kind of just pitches in and, and does what they have to do. Um, let's get into today's bottle and stick. Today I'm smoking the All Saints Dedication. This is the Berkey uh, 5.5 by 50 box press Robusto Mexican San Andreas wrapper, Nicaraguan binder and filler. MSRP is around 950 released in April 2020. Uh, the flavor profile is said to have caramel, cinnamon, and cocoa. Uh, the cigar re- received 93 rating from Stogie Press, which is impressive, and then uh, 89 for uh, Half Wheel. The thing looks great. Uh, great aromatics. Uh, especially from the cold draw before I lit it. I, I just lit it. And let me tell you that the, the flavors fired off immediately from, from light. It, it, it can't wait to see how it pairs with what we have in front of us, the lineup from Whiskey Acres. And so that brings us to the bottle. Nick, what do you have for us to sip on tonight? And what do you want to start with? We're starting with our, uh, our bottle and bond bourbon. Uh, it's our 27 vintage. And I kind of laugh when I say that because it might be one of, if not the only, bourbon with a vintage that you'll ever find. And the reason that's important is, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the farm side of things. So we, we have a farm and we grow everything that goes into the bottle. And uh, we think that there's some variations from one harvest and one crop to the next. And particularly in our bottle and bond products that are, are uh, you know, have to be four years old. They have to be made at the same distilling season. We think it's fun to take it a step further and identify the growing season and the harvest season. So we're sipping on our 2017 Bottled and Bond bourbon. Um, I don't really like to go too deep into the flavor components because every every person's going to taste it differently. You know, what did you have for lunch today and what kind of mood are you in? I, I like to approach things sort of the, the Caesar, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. I like it. I don't. Yep. But but if I, I have to get into a few details on this, uh, this this is the Whiskey Acres flavor. It's 75% corn, 15% soft red winter wheat, and 10% malted barley. It it tastes like the corn it was made from, and that's that's on purpose. Um, a lot of butterscotch notes. It's kind of viscous. Um, you know, some cinnamon, dark cherry finish, dark chocolate. Uh, it's kind of like this hybrid of of this unique craft, crafty distilled whiskey with uh, sort of the traditional notes you'll get from a well-aged, you know, bonded product. Uh, you mentioned some some awards on the cigar you're smoking. Uh, this one won double gold at the San Francisco World Spirits Competition. So wow, we um, we're proud of that that validation. 
Yeah, yeah. That was that was one of the things that I, 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 I'm a fan of Bottled and Bond. The previous episode, I kind of went over what Bottled and Bond is. And folks, if, if you want to learn more about it, scroll back to previous episode so I don't have to get into it now. But um, just like uh, it started with E.H. Taylor, uh, really. I mean, he was the one that kind of pushed it. And Bottled and Bond is... Uh, this this bottle of the bonnet is is outstanding. In fact, I remember when I first tried it, and I don't remember what vintage I had, but I texted you. I was at um, the blue the the what was it um, the blue wren royal wren royal wren yeah. royal wren in Geneva, and uh, it was like good so like that trigger. I'm like I gotta I gotta text Nick. I gotta let him know. Hey, I know you're coming on the show, but I just tried this and it's outstanding. <laughs> And uh, it's phenomenal. The, the vintage is something that I haven't seen in, in a lot of any, any really, bottled and bond thing. Do you see a, a change or a variance from year to year? I know we're, this one says 2017. So, like, would that be any major difference in the 2016 or 2018, the years ahead and behind? So, you know, I don't ever want to use the word major in, in a difference from one to the next because if that's the case, you know, we're not doing something right on the, the blends. You know, we, we need to have some basic consistency from one product to the next, just like vintages of wine. You know, exactly, they're, they're like wine. You know, you have a foundational trust and understanding of what that particular place is going to put in a bottle. Yeah. But some are just more special or more unique or different. Uh, can be because of the crop, can be because of the aging process, uh, because of the barrels that we blend. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we can very specifically identify, though, is that the crop year that it's made from. And so we're looking into... You know, if I take a step back and give you just a few more details on, on Whiskey Acres. So we have a farm sitting in the, the middle of 2,000 acre? 2,000 acre farm. I have two business partners, Jim and Jamie Walter. And we actually built the farm on their family's, uh, um, built the distillery on their family's farm. They've been there since the 1930s. You mentioned my family has a separate farm uh, a little bit downstate. And, um, you know, it's home. I love it. love to help my family, you know, on the row crop operation. But there's not enough people there to support, you know, a growing business like this. You know, graduating class of 15, my entire high school reunion can be in our visitor center. It can fit in the shed. <laughs> it can fit in the shed. You know, I, I laugh when I went to college. I told people that my dad had more pigs on our farm than people in my school, and that was true. Um, <laughs> but, you know, foundation of Whiskey Acres is the three of us are farmers first yeah. and wanted to do something differently with different from the grain that we grow. And, you know, Jim and Jamie have looked into, um, you know, doing a – corn mazes and pumpkin farms and hybrid popcorn and things like that, but all have been done. Uh, Jamie also looked into growing grapes to, mm -hmm. to make some, some high-end um, wines there, but the fact of the matter is you can't grow the kind of grapes to make the kind of wine we'd like. And um, somewhere in 2010, 2011, Jamie had the light bulb moment of, well, the craft distilling movement is, is exploding. Yeah. The state of Illinois is changing the laws, which was really a linchpin in, in, in our movement. And uh, we have some of the best corn on the planet. So, you know, two plus two equals four, right? And, and so, you know, you mentioned my seed business. I was working with them in the seed business and uh, sort of a right place, right time thing where they, they knew my skill set and they knew my passion. And we drank enough whiskey together that they asked if I wanted to be part of the startup process. And, uh, you know, after a fairly long and um, detail-oriented conversation with my wife, <laughs> she, she blessed it. And uh, we decided to do this because we wanted to do something different from the grain we grow. 
Yeah. And so as it relates to this, you know, we can grow different types of corn. We can grow different, uh, you know, corn in different seasons. And everything that we do at Whiskey Acres is really expressing something different from the from the farm. And go ahead. No, uh, actually, yeah, and then that kind of segues into your your seed experience in the seed industry that you were in. You, if I remember correctly, uh, that all kind of stems uh, roots, if no pun intended, back to uh, a, a little bit of a story from you had a skimboarding accident. <laughs> you broke your neck, which is the same bone that Christopher Reeve broke. Yeah. And through your recovery, and if I remember this, if I got this right, you've you made those connections, and you, that's what eventually you could say rooted you or stemmed you back to Jim and Jamie Walter was was the uh, was the connections you made through that. How can you can you kind of bring us <laughs> from a skimboarding accident to being a co-founder of a whiskey distillery? How long do we have this podcast? <laughs> I'll, I'll give you the shortest version of this I can. So, um, spring break, Panama City Beach, two thousand and four. Yeah. Uh, number one lesson I learned is never be sober on spring break, and I was uh, sitting on a beach with my best friend eating a Subway sandwich, drinking a Pepsi, and a skimboard washed up on the beach. And uh, I looked at him and said, "I'm going to try this," and I didn't do it very well <laughs> because. Uh, crashed into a wave crashed into my legs and I basically maybe trip made my head slam into a sandbank and broke my neck wow. and still I walked away from it called the ambulance and told them that I was laying on a deck in Panama City Beach and come get me um, I did not get the best medical care while I was there my mom flew down God bless her she uh, the, the strength of a panicked mother she flew to Panama City Beach without a driver's license and rented a car and drove me home and uh, <laughs> and uh, eventually got me into Northwestern Hospital, where I met the director of neurosurgery there, who woke me up that, that morning and said, Nick, I just want to wish you happy birthday because you shouldn't be alive. I'm going to make sure you live now. And uh, so that was, you know, the second semester of my senior year, they put me in a halo and told me, you know, don't lift more than five pounds. Uh, enjoy yourself, finish your school. But in the next three to six months, we're going to know whether you get to uh, heal and take this thing off and live life, or whether you're gonna take this thing off, you didn't heal the right way, and you're gonna have to have reconstructive neck surgery. Wow. So coming out of college, I couldn't go interview for jobs like the rest of my peers are doing, because I didn't know what I was gonna be doing. You know, I, what, There's a big difference in take the halo off and behave yourself for a little while, or take the halo off and have reconstructive neck surgery. Yeah. So um, I got the halo off, things were looking pretty good, but I still wasn't free, so to speak. So I did a little bit of substitute teaching. Uh, and then I, once I finally got sort of released, I was like, I'm going to take the first job I can find. So I went to the university, went to their senior college fair when I was a recently graduated alum. And the first job, the only thing I talked to, the only person who called me back that day was Rural King. So it's a, like a peer to farm and fleet. And they basically hired me on the spot to go take a general or a, an assistant manager position at their farm department in the Lafayette, Indiana store. That's like, you know, whatever. I grew up on a pig farm, you know, <laughs> no work is too dirty. No, no work. I'm, I'm not, I can do anything that, that pays the bills. So I did that and learned a lot. Uh, but in that process, I, I, uh, or during a break, I, I took a trip up to Chicago with some buddies and uh, we were staying at a hotel called the Allerton, which overlooks the Northwestern hospital building where I was going to. And a friend of a friend who actually is from Batavia, 
um, grew up right down the street from here, actually. Cool. Uh, she she showed up late to the hotel, and uh, you know we were getting ready to go out. And she's like, I couldn't find the place, but I, I work right across the street from here. And I said, you're a nurse? She says, no, but my, my firm is a public relations firm, and they uh, they rent the 10th and 11th floor of this of this building. And I said, do you have any agriculture clients? And she says, yeah, ADM. Are you hiring? Yeah. Like two days later, I interviewed and was got got a job with that company, which, by the way, the um, my freshman year, when I had to put my like career plan together, my goal, my ultimate goal, is work in public relations for ADM. Yeah, that, that's so, yeah. Well, well, not ADM, but like your your agricultural communications was one, your your major. So I, I I started that job and worked uh, with them, uh, doing that for about three years, and then switched to another client, Syngenta. Uh, and did a lot of corporate communications work for them, and eventually was given the opportunity to take over a sales territory, where uh, I managed uh, the sales from basically from Chicago all the way over to Dixon, and uh, in that process is where I met Jim and Jamie. And um, one one really cool thing that I didn't mention, so when I got this when I got this job at Weber Shanwick, which is in the Northwestern Hospital building, it was I started one year to the day of when I had broken my neck. Oh wow! I had had a a previously scheduled doctor's appointment that day. So I I uh, went to the doctor's appointment, got released, walked across the street, started my job, and got put in what they call the intern pit and met my wife. <laughs> so, you know. So connections it, connections were actually multiple just, connections just, were made in this in yeah, this accident. Yeah, you know, just roll with the punches. Wow. You know, I'm blessed to, to be vertical. I'm blessed to, that yeah. I've been able no, to. Absolutely. Uh, you know, continue to thrive after that because, you know, like you mentioned I broke the same thing that Chris Reese broke and that's, I look a little bit better than he, he did. And that's, yeah, that, I mean, that's, I mean, I don't know how you want to talk about miracles or blessings or. It's, it's or, all of them. It is everything it's, in it's, one. It's yeah. all of them. So when you met Jamie and Jim, uh, and like you said, you didn't know if you wanted to go graves, but like what really inspired the, the whiskey business. I know that, uh, I mean, if you want to talk about inspiration, I know your your grandmother, Grandma Kate, I believe, said the three B's in, in life are the uh, butter, bacon, and bourbon. Butter, bacon, and bourbon. So did that somehow inspire you to, to get into the, did she to help facilitate your inspiration with, with whiskey? She just laughed and enjoyed it with me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, raise a glass to her. She passed away uh, in September. Oh, uh, yeah, she, absolutely. She, she died with a smile on her face, surrounded by family. Um, but this this opportunity was so far from anything that was my family ever really did. You know, my, my dad lives in the house that he grew up in, which is across the street from the house that his dad grew up in, which is next door to the house that his father grew up in. Um, you know, they're all, my, my great-grandfather farmed 840 acres with horses. Wow. <laughs> I mean, wow. And, and uh, had five oh. kids, and that, that 840 acres got divided by five kids. And so, you know, there's a lot of families down there that, are, that have grown that farmland. But so you got the compound going now. Yeah, it's a compound, but it's also separate business, businesses. And so, you know, as much as I love farming, to, to help my dad and grow our family business is, would be taking acres away from my other family. Right. And so, you know, I've, I'm fairly creative and fairly outgoing. And so this opportunity, you know, this, the sales part of it that, that I was doing in selling seed, you know, really helped me to meet a lot of people and network. Full credit goes to Jamie. Um, he is the, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit uh, who really, you know, discovered the opportunity that existed in craft distilling. I, I think he'd been eyeballing it for a few years. Up until about 2011, 
I think the state of Illinois limited a craft distiller to more, more, no more than 5,000 gallons of whiskey production a year. Yeah. So, you know, that sounds like a lot if you're making it in your cigar shack, right? But, but that's not enough to scale a business. No. So in 2011, 12, something like that, the, the law changed from five to 15,000 gallons, which still isn't a lot. But if you use round numbers, 15,000 gallons is about 75,000 bottles. Okay, if you, you can make and sell 75,000 bottles, then you're, you're on a good path. Um, I, as it sits today, it's, it's 100,000 gallons is your limit. So, you know, Jamie had his eye on, the, on this, you know, the legal side of things and what you could do. Um, you know, had his pulse on the fact that craft distilling was, was growing. Um, and then, you know, had the, had the wherewithal to, to reach out to me and, you know, just basically bring me on board to, to make it real. You know, it was something that he and his dad talked about a lot over coffee in the morning, but until, you know, he asked me to get involved, it was... Are they, Jim and Jamie, are they whiskey, like good, you know, big whiskey drinkers too, or... Yeah. At, I mean, I mean, at the time when, when this was all being you know, a, a thought? Everyone, I, I think we've, we've probably gone on the same evolution that, that the, the bourbon and whiskey world has, that, you know, we enjoy the whiskey. Yeah. yeah. Um, but certainly didn't have... 75 bottles sitting in our, our cabinet, at, you know, in 2011 or 2012. Right. Um, now we have, you know, probably 750 bottles sitting <laughs> in our cabinets now. Uh, and so, you know, certainly appreciate the work that goes into it. And, um, you know, really just wanted to create something, though. You know, one of the things that, that I think was really important that often doesn't get talked about enough is Jim, this spring, will be, I think, planting his, either his 53rd or 54th crop. Wow, and yeah, I mean, they're what they're fifth generation farmers. Well, they've been on that site since the 1930s, and then were um, okay. their families farming in Portsmouth, Ohio, uh, in the late 1800s. So moved from Portsmouth to basically found some better land, yeah, in DeKalb. And uh, Jim doesn't talk about this, and you know he's a humble and successful man, but he was awarded something called a Master Farmer Award in 20. 06, 2008, something like that. And it's award is given to four people, four farmers in the state of Illinois every year. You're nominated by your peers. And it's given to, to somebody who's a good steward of the land, good member of the community, uh, and works really hard to teach the next generation best practices. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's a big honor in the agriculture industry. And, and you know, Jim didn't let it go to his head, but at the same time went, all right, you know, I'm successful. Uh, I do everything that he does at, you know, on the farm has done well, but when you're growing corn, there is no incentive to grow high quality grain. So in the, in the commodity markets, it's really about delivering something that meets a minimum standard of quality as opposed to a premium standard of quality. And so, you know, he's often lamented that, you know, I'm, I'm doing everything right. I'm, I'm making high quality grain, growing high quality grain, but there's no premium involved in this. Oh, and by the way, my farm is sitting 60 miles straight west of Chicago, the third largest metro center in the United States, and every bushel of corn he's ever grown has gone west, west away from <laughs> Chicago. And so this was really a way to, to become a little bit more grounded with the consumer, to really capitalize on what's being grown there and what's being grown well, and, and to have control. You know, when you, when you sell your, your bushel of corn, the, the Board of Trade tells you what it's worth. Huh. When you sell your bottle of bourbon, you set the price. Yeah. And so that gives you a lot more control over, over your, your finances um, 
as long as you do it right. You know, you can charge two hundred dollars for a bottle, but you got you got to do it the right way to, to have somebody willing to give it to you. It's true. At, at, at the beginning, Whiskey Acres took a, an approach to formulate a barrel program instead of outsourcing spirits to companies like MP, M, MGP, uh, and like some most companies actually often do to get product out before they get their distillery up and running. But you had a different approach. Can can you kind of kind of go over that? How how that game plan? How you got production production up and running? and whiskey to age without outsourcing? Well, the first thing is none of us quit our day jobs. So Jim and Jamie continue to farm. I help them. And then you mentioned integrated seeds. It's an independent seed business that I still have. So we, we continued doing that in addition to starting up a distillery. So your listener, our listeners can't see us, but I have no hair. One listener. Yeah, yeah okay. Maybe, yeah, well. <laughs> maybe two and now. I have no hair. And I'd like to think that I gave it all to the distillery. Uh, but... It was really about bootstrapping it. So one of the key things that we did was we were able to work with Dave Pickerel. You know, Dave, Dave the former master distiller at Maker's yeah. Mark, you know, he's often referred to as the, the Johnny Appleseed of craft distilling. We did not bring Dave on to teach us how to make Maker's Mark. We brought him on to validate our business plan to, you know, help us navigate the bureaucratic waters of, of distilling and help us shop. You know, that if you, you're, there, there's no real formula for what you need and who you should buy it from. Yeah, but also to to validate recipes and and really you know set us on on a direction as opposed to just us and our, our intuition. And among the many things that Dave guided us on uh, was was this barrel program. And you mentioned that most distilleries source, and that's a really profitable way to make make a living in, in the whiskey world. It's a good way to get started. Yep, for yeah. sure to put your name on a bottle and say it's yours. And, and to get started, and then you get your other product up and running, and then you say, oh, and this is also ours. So, you know, I, I think there's there's a lot of people who've done it, and there's not as many people who've done it the right way. You know, I'll, I'll give kudos to uh, my friends, the Blonde Brothers up in Galena. You know, they came out with Notter Bourbon, uh, which was MGP source whiskey, spelled K-N-O-T-T-E-R, pronounced not our bourbon. And they were fully transparent about it and said, guys, we're, we started a distillery today. We have whiskey tomorrow. Uh, but you're gonna have our whiskey in four, five, six years. That's how uh, Chad, Tim from Chattanooga, he, he did, they did the same thing. They, uh, they specifically made sure that hey, by the way, it's not this one doesn't say made in Chattanooga, but our next bottle said made in Chattanooga, and that is phenomenal stuff. To, yes. But because we lay the foundation of our talking points and and our really our quality is based off of what we're growing on the farm, to take the shortcut and buy somebody else's whiskey. Just goes goes really against our, our our thesis, you know, our business plan, our motto, our lifestyle, yep. and so just from having it very important to be transparent uh, and, and being being truthful and sticking with what we wanted to do, we decided that sourcing was not an option for us. So back to Dave Pickerel, um, there's a lot of distillers that use small barrels, and there's a lot of opinions on whether those are good, bad, or indifferent. Um, we knew that we did not want to be stuck in small, small barrels forever, but we were willing to invest in them to help us kind of bridge that gap. So on year one, we filled 15-gallon, 25-gallon, and 53-gallon barrels. Okay. Year two, we filled 25-gallon and 53-gallon barrels. On year three, we only filled 53-gallon barrels and beyond. So when we got to year three, we're selling two-year-old whiskey from 15s. We got to year four. We're selling three-year-old whiskey from 25s. And we get to year five, we're able to begin selling four-year-old whiskey from 53s. Yep, and that, that probably explains why when I first moved here, 
I was handed a bottle of whiskey acres and I'm like, oh, the age statement at that time said, you know, aged for at least two years. But now I'm starting to see age for at least four or, or more years yep. because of the way it was in phases. Yep. yep. And, and so uh, that was important to us. We, we had to we had to do that uh, for a couple of reasons. One is you, you can't make whiskey for six years and then just come on board with, at least our opinion, with just this giant pile and no brand recognition. So we thought that this sort of measured approach of building the base and, and being transparent with people that what we're making today is our core, yep. but not exactly what you're going to get when we get down the road. We're going to become better distillers. We're going to know yep. how to manage the facilities better, better blenders, and it's going to be older. Oh, yeah. And, and so, you know, it's been a challenge, to be perfectly honest with you, is, you know, somebody that tasted batch one, batch two, which I'm still very proud of, but it sure as hell isn't as good as what we're putting in a bottle today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it goes miles with from, I mean, not to downplay it at all, but from the first Whiskey Acres I ever had to what I'm having right now or what I just finished right now, it, it's... You can you can taste the the progression in in the, the aging and and the, the experience everything kind of comes together because knowing that backstory knowing how it all started and how it was in phases explains why like what I first had which was was good but this is in my opinion personal opinion um, you know escalated if you would well elevated. You know. It, uh, I like to refer to it as craft whiskey without an excuse. Yeah. And um, that's what, what I like to think everything we have moving forward will be. We won't put anything in a bottle that's less than four years. You know, the, the aging thing is, is interesting. A number is the single easiest thing to market. Yep. Five is bigger than three, so five must be better than three. Seven is bigger than five, so seven must be better than five. And, you know, our friends in Kentucky have had a lot of time to age a lot of whiskey and have put a lot of their marketing dollars behind, you know, the idea that older is better. I believe, we believe that that four-year, five-year time frame is what needs to happen to sort of check all the boxes in a barrel. When you're aging whiskey, you've got two things. You've got additive aging and deductive aging. So... You char the inside of a barrel, the whiskey goes in and out of that, that char, which is essentially carbon and or charcoal, and it's pulling out things that you don't want. So you've got deductive activity happening there. And no matter how good of a distiller you are, you're still gonna have, have you know, off flavors and congeners that you need to go through that maturation process. Uh, you're getting oxidation that's, yep. uh, that's happening there that's giving you the most cliche term in whiskey, smooth, right? You know, it softens the whiskey up. The, the, the heat, the warming, yep. the... Yeah, exactly. And then you've got additive aging that's happening. So when when that whiskey's in the barrel, and particularly when you've got our, our warehouses are old grain bins. So they're made of corrugated steel, and they're completely exposed to all the temperature changes that happen. So the pores of the oak expand and contract, and they drive the whiskey in and out of those staves. I was going to ask that, yeah. The more often you do that, the deeper the whiskey goes within those staves and draws out more of those wood sugars. And so that's where it becomes sweeter and more palatable and, and just more interesting. Yep. However... When you get past, and I don't know the number yet because we haven't gotten there, but let's say seven years, nine years, ten years, that whiskey is going to take on way more of the barrel characteristics than it is your distillation characteristics. 
we're damn proud of the whiskey we put in the bottle or put in the barrel in the first place. You know, I talked about it being, you know, corn bomb. And, and we think that somewhere in the four, five, six, seven year time frame is the appropriate place for us to showcase the raw distillate and at the same time checking all the boxes and doing all the additive things we need to have in a barrel to give us something that's special and unique. Have you guys thought about bringing, or do you even have uh, a, like a bottle of white dog, uh, straight, you know, before, before the barrel, can people purchase that? I know some companies, we, I know Buffalo Trace did that. We used to, that, okay. that was, that was one of our, our, you know, bridge the gap products of, you know, a white whiskey. Here, that, here's the white dog. And then yeah. here's the four year old. So now you can see so the difference type of thing. I, yeah. I have the best, um, sort of personal way to tell this story though, is I have five-year-old twins that we talked about a little bit ago on the day that they were born. Uh, we filled two barrels, but I took two bottles and filled them with white dog. On year number two, I pulled bottles from each of those barrels. Year number four, pulled bottles from each of those. We'll do it on six and do that till they're 21. So I'll have wow. I'll have cool. a progression of that to, to really be able to, to tell that story. That's awesome. Yeah, so, um, but they're only five now, so there's not a very big story to tell. <laughs> yeah. So within the, the whiskey industry, it, it, like you said, it, it's somewhat of a boom. It's called a bump. But one of the operations that separates whiskey acres from most of the distilleries that I know of is that you grow your own corn on that 2,000-acre farm. And though you're not the only distillery to in a country to do this, you are, though, the, the second certified farm distiller in a nation. And this supports your motto, the, the seed to spirit, because you grow what you, what you distill. Uh, and you grow other things than corn. You grow... Uh, Wheat, wheat, and uh, but rye and barley. The the, the barley, uh, I heard, was a, a funky, fun story to get to the farm because it was, it wasn't a crop that was easily grown uh, at first. Can you can you kind of explain what that was all about? Well, there's a, there's a couple sort of side stories on that. So we talked about my my dad. Uh, we raise Black Angus cattle. Yeah. And. Um, as part of that, we raise alfalfa, and uh, what you do is you plant what you call a nurse crop. You plant alfalfa, orchard grass, and oats at the same time. Uh, the oats germinate and grow, and uh, then you harvest the oats in, in late June, early July, uh, and then the alfalfa comes to life. Um, that's just part of our standard rotation. Uh, the Walter farm, it's corn and soybeans, and there, there was no opportunity to do something like that. So my dad said he'd be willing to, to try this out, but instead of using oats as a nurse crop, we use barley. And so, so we grew it. Um, it was successful in the sense that we had barley. Uh, it certainly wasn't a bumper crop, but uh, we, we harvested it. We actually shipped it to Sugar Hill, Sugar Creek Malt down in Lebanon, uh, Indiana. They malted it and shipped it back up to DeKalb. We distilled it. So we call that single variety, single estate, single batch, Wow. Single barrel, single malt. And uh, I've had, let's just, locally here, or in the state of Illinois, I've had a handful of fairly prominent whiskey buyers of stores that you and I both know who I think are ready to like have Mortal Kombat fights who gets, <laughs> gets the first allocation of that stuff. Um, but, you know, Dad's operation was only so much that we, we can only scale it so much. And still, 100, 100 miles away isn't that far, but it's far enough that it's a pain. 
So we started playing around with the, the barley up here in, in DeKalb as well. And uh, I think this is our third year that we've grown it. Yeah. And uh, are taking delivery on our, our malt this coming Monday. And so often we've been very transparent about we grow everything but barley. We've been sourcing it from southern Wisconsin. Um, moving forward, 100% of what we distill, we grow. And What do you have uh, next on our list here? Uh, of what we're going to drink next yeah. is our uh, bottled and bond rye. Okay. Speaking so, of rye, I'll give you my glass while you pour, and I will ask you. I said most other ingredients because our weather in Illinois is prone to cause issues with tall cro- crops like rye. And I believe at one point, you, you just mentioned that you, you grow rye, but at one point you were getting your rye from a farmer friend, uh, Mike Swanson. Do you have any... Uh, are you grow in full operation of, of growing rye now, or are you still sourcing from Mike? So we only sourced seed from Mike. Oh. We never sourced okay. uh, distill, d- uh, distillable rye. Um, I mean, they're the same thing, but we, we got the, the actual seed from him. And so, so Mike is a friend of ours who runs a distillery called Far North, uh, a true peer of ours that uh, he basically is a nine iron from Canada, uh, where they, they grow rye uh, the way that we grow corn. It's very prolific there. Uh, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of research behind it. What's interesting, and I'm going to go on a farmer tangent here, is if you drive around Illinois and really, really most of the United States, there's very little rye that's actually grown. And when it is grown, it's grown as a cover crop. So you plant the cover crop to prevent um, soil erosion and nutrient leaching. And so really, all you're doing is trying to have plant material there uh, to prevent things from running off. You never really let it go to grain. Yeah. Um, and then when you take, because of that, there's no really financial incentive for companies to develop new rye genetics. And uh, so when we go to buy rye seed, we're buying what's called NVS, non-variety specific. It's like going to Menards and buying just grass seed. And uh, when you grow that NVS rye into kelp, which, which has some of the most nutrient-rich soil on the planet, compounded with our really long growing season, that rye is really happy. And so it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows. And you, you actually plant rye in the fall. Uh, it grows for a little while, goes dormant over the winter and comes back to life in the spring and you harvest it in mid-July. Oftentimes, this rye that's available to us would be eight, nine, 10 feet tall. And what always happens is, um, a, you know, one There's of our- There's a fancy word for it, right? Where it- falls over yeah yeah so you get you get your your uh, 30 mile an hour 50 mile an hour wind with your two inch rain and and it bulldozes it over and it's called lodging lodging that's lodging. It, yeah and, and so basically you've got your rye crop that's laying flat on the ground and and if it's harvestable uh you're bringing up dirt and all kinds of other things that you really don't want yep so when we set out to grow rye uh again back to dave pickerel dave introduced us to, to mike and suggested that we get this very specific variety that was uh originated in canada that um we're buying that seed purely for its agronomics and agronomics is basically another word for plant characteristics how hardy it is how tall it grows the grain quality and the number one thing we're looking at is it's a short plant with a sturdy stalk and so we we grew it and successfully grew it and the bonus that you know i just saw you take your taste here that we did not anticipate we were looking at rye we you know we had sort of a narrow vision of of we're going to be creative with corn uh, what we found is this particular variety of rye, when you distill it, doesn't it really taste like traditional rye. It's Dude, I'm, I, I mentioned it in other episodes, and I, I might, <laughs> man, uh, 
the more I do this podcast, the more I have this experiences with, with different distillers, the, the, the past couple that I've had surprised me. I, this rye is, I, I'm a big bourbon fan, but man, this rye is outstanding. We call it a bourbon drinker's rye. So yeah. the mash bill is 75% rye, 25% corn. It's a vanilla bomb on the nose. We use corn as a second ingredient to bring some viscosity and yeah. reinforce those sweet notes. It's not that traditional, like, bitey, spicy finish. It's no. much more soft. There's still pepper there. It, co- it complements the cigar that we're smoking. That, that, that it is, it's very, you know, you have the, the two different pairings. You can do two of the same or two complete opposites. And I think this is one of those two complete opposites where you have a very smooth beverage and, and the, the cigar itself is, is kind of bold in flavor. And so it kind of helps elevate the flavors from both sides. And uh, this is, well, I don't even know what I would want if I were to go to Benny's right now. I don't know if I would pick the, <laughs> the bottled and bond bourbon or the, the, or the rye. It's, and, and I see the rye is harvested, what, 2018, the, the bottle says. It's a 2018, yep. So even with the Baldwin Bond rye, you still do the vintage with still that do the as vintage. well. And, and we, our, our rye age is just a little a bit less. So our, okay. all of our bonded bourbons are at least five years. All of our bonded ryes are at least four years. So the harvest number that I see is not bottled number, uh, the, not bottle, uh, bottle year. It is, it is harvested distilled year. Yeah. So the, the farm has been very symbiotic for us okay. in that you plant corn in the spring and you harvest it in the fall. You plant rye in the fall, and you harvest it in the summer. So let's just say we started with distilling corn. Okay, we distill corn till July, and then we now have a rye crop. So we now start distilling our rye, and we generally run out of rye around October 15th, and oh look, we've got a fresh corn crop. And so we know, I can tell you just, if, if we're raising livestock, you, if you talk to any livestock farmer, particularly a hog farmer, they will tell you that when you feed hogs fresh corn from the field they eat more of it because it tastes better and so i mean, i like to transpose that that means that it's better for the yeast yeah. because it's fresh or you know just think of it just like um you know fresh sweet corn fresh anything fresh is better yeah and, and so by mm. by having the ability to to harvest and immediately begin distilling or harvest and store very well and you know distill or you know distill from it a couple months down the road is what most people envy. Speaking of corn, and we'll get back to corn, and we'll get back to rye, and we'll, we're going to do this game. But corn, uh, the Calb has been dubbed the Napa Valley of corn. We dubbed it that. Just to did you clear, dub that it? Was, that was that was self, Jamie self-proclaimed yep. dub. We're, but keep telling. Fair the story. enough. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I read that Whiskey Acres only uses ten percent of their corn for their whiskey. Yep. Where does the other ninety percent go? West. <laughs> West. Yeah, so what, what I like to, to tell people is that uh, it's actually a known fact that a lot of the corn that's used in Kentucky for whiskey production comes from Illinois. So I like to say that we send them our sloppy seconds. That's, that's not <laughs> exactly true. Um, in all seriousness, the, about 10% of the crops we grow we use. Uh, the rest of it gets just marketed in the traditional way of uh, there's a fuel ethanol plant in Rochelle uh, or gets sold to um, neighbors who have hog farms or goes to the river. Uh, oftentimes, uh, the corn makes it to um, Asia. In fact, one of the really one of the reasons that that sort of the idea that the corn was special, Sapporo beer uh, 
in 2000s was buying corn directly from the Whiskey Acres farm. Really? Yeah. Because they came... That is my go-to yeah. sushi bar beer. They 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 knew there was something special going on there. So that, that was one of those, you know, pun intended, seeds planted that said we have something that we need to make sure we capitalize on here. Huh. So E.H. Taylor once said that water is the key to great whiskey, and that's why at his old castle, which is now Castle and Key, the water well is shaped like a key. Does Whiskey Acres have any specific uh, water uh, well or or filtration system, unique filtration system process that they that they use? Well, it's it's unique in the sense that um, we're one of the few people that are actually capitalizing on on a well that Grandpa dug, you know, 80 years ago. So again, I'll bring up Dave Pickerel. When you're making whiskey, cooling demands are just huge, and you cool using water. And most places are sitting on a lake, sitting near a river, on a municipal water supply. And so they do the pump and dump method: bring it in, heat it up, pump it out. Um, to to run a distillery our size, you need as many as 10,000 gallons of, of of water a day. And our farm well can't, you know, that was dug wow. in, in the 1930s can't sustain that. Yeah. And so we were looking at digging in essentially a municipal-style water supply to give us an infinite amount of water to, to meet these cooling needs. And Dave said, before you do this, let's, let's check what, what you've got here. And so we get the results back, and I could still see him open the envelope up and just, just laugh. <laughs> and he says, guys, your water here is chem- chemically identical to what they're using in Bardstown, Kentucky. Wow. We got to we got to rethink this. Is it the limestone that's underneath? Yep, it's the limestone that's underneath. You know, it's it's coming from basically yep. coming from Canada. I mean, I mean yeah. we're in Batavia. Yep. Batavia is known for yep. their limestone. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. And so that forced us to pivot in a way that's been very important to the business and important to the way that we do things. And that now we have a finite resource in this well water, but we we need to use a lot of it. So we thought. So Dave said, "Well, let's let's build this place a little differently." And so what we did was we pivoted. And started putting in, in systems that recirculated, recycled, and reclaimed virtually every drop of water we use. So today, to, that ten should be about 10,000 gallons we're using. We're using about 700 gallons of water. Wow. Maybe even less than that. And 400 of that just going to the recipe. You know, that's that's unsavable gallons. The rest of it's going to blending, washing, toilet flushing, you know, yeah, that yeah, kind of yeah. stuff. Um, so we put in a 40-horsepower glycol chiller. You have, a, you have a, a, a pretty big visitor center too yep that would obviously use water <laughs> it, you know a minimal amount there but right but the the production side of things is where it really is going is, right. is is consuming so we have a glycol chiller that uh that essentially cools down a big nurse tank that we use for for cooling okay we have a um a an evaporative cooling tower that when it's like this outside uh you know anything between 30 and 40 degrees is just perfect for meeting all of our cooling demands and it's then 32 out yeah, right now. This is perfect. And then we also piped the system in a way that we pull water directly from the well and use that to be our initial cooling mechanism through some uh, cooling coils in our mash cooker. And then that water gets piped back up to a reservoir tank, uh, stores overnight, and the cooling water that's preheated today becomes our foundational cooking water for tomorrow. So we, we, we the first 400 and some odd gallons of cooling water that we had today get piped back in and and are preheated and and uh, ready to rock and roll for us to start just uh, cooking with all of that very good for water consumption very bad for electricity electricity consumption oh i bet um so three maybe four years ago we put in a, a solar array 
that nice. 100% offsets every unit of electricity we use on an annual basis. So from a water consumption standpoint, wow. from an electrical usage standpoint, and you know, from a carbon footprint standpoint, if you want to think about the impact you have of moving corn or grain from the field to the fermenter, there's not a shorter path that grain takes than what we do. So we're highly, highly sustainable. We didn't set out, that wasn't like, we're going to do this. We were doing it, and we kind of looked at each other and said, we should talk about it more. Yeah, like, why aren't we doing this? Well, it wasn't like, why aren't we doing it? It's like, why aren't we talking about it? <laughs> you know, just because our nature of being farmers and doing, you know, as much as we can with as little as we can, it's just yeah. ingrained in the way we operate. Yeah. And so really kind of found that, well, you know, we're doing this because it meets the demands of the farm, because it's the right thing to do, because it's good for the business. And, oh, by the way, sustainability is really cool. So let's make sure we bring it up in our messaging a little bit. Yeah, I mean, that... that makes sense in in the business model if you would if you were to start looking at like forecasting costs and stuff like that so on on a few of your bottles uh you have a maple aged whiskey and if, uh, correct me if i'm wrong but from what i understand you age whiskey in a barrel then you remove the whiskey and you give that barrel to a maple syrup company then so they can make you know bourbon and bourbon barrel syrup then you get that barrel back, and then you age whiskey in it to make a uh, maple syrup aged whiskey. As the TTB what? sees it, it's called, quote, bourbon whiskey finished in a maple syrup cask, unquote. And, <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's you, you hit it. Make whiskey, empty barrel, send barrel to maple syrup farm. Maple syrup ages syrup. Yeah. Empty syrup, send it back to us. We take bourbon that's ready for a bottle. Instead of bottling it, we let it finish in that maple syrup cask for another nine to twelve months. Whose idea was that? Was, was that like that a, was my idea? Okay, yeah. And it was actually um, that, that, there was, I mean, there was a I haven't of, tried it, but it sounds. There was a group of farmers from Wisconsin uh, that were coming through, and they were talking about maple syrup. And I said, "You got any barrels? <laughs> no, you want some barrels? You want some barrels? Yeah, yeah, yeah we can do this. And I mean, like we were just talking about our buddy Gindo, uh, yeah, Chris. Yeah. Uh, same thing. He he aged hot sauce in a whiskey acres barrel." And it is outstanding. It is probably, I mean, I have, my, my three listeners know, I have uh, like a, a hot sauce cellar, not a whiskey cellar or a wine cellar. I had, I, I'm a hot, I'm a heat head. Hmm. That Reams bourbon barrel hot sauce was phenomenal. And, and it is one of those, like, I saw that and then I read that about the whiskey or about the maple syrup and I'm like, yeah. wow. That, okay. So there's a few other places doing it. You know, there's some mainstream products that are, are you know, such and such company, maple syrup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's artificial flavored over the top. We we bottle this at cast strength. So I think the lowest proof was ever 114. The highest is 119. We want this to be bourbon first. And we want the maple characteristics to be complementary, not leading. So the, the bourbon that you age first before you hand off the barrel is that the same bourbon you put back in the barrel okay okay yeah so that we empty barrels and you know we could be drinking that right now right and then got it then we take barrels of bourbon that could be bottled and instead of bottling them they get finished another bottle that caught my attention and i read about it and i saw it today at the goat which is the old oak and swine in in batavia which is the Bloody butcher, bloody butcher corn. Is that what? What is that? So, in in the corn world, there's 
there's heirloom varietals of corn that have kind of cool names like that, mm-hmm. and Bloody Butcher is one of those. And the best way to describe it to you is that the kernels are blood red. And, you know, it wouldn't, you know, to us, we look at that and go, well, that's got to make something that tastes different. Yeah. And, and that's also something that, generally speaking, you just can't go out and, you know, buy a ton of. And when I say a ton, I mean, like, literally, you yeah. can't go buy a ton of it uh, to, to make whiskey from. And so the only way that you can really have access to something like that at a reasonable price is to grow it. So Bloody Butcher Bourbon, uh, we're not we're not pioneers in that. Just to be fully transparent, is that a regular production or was that like a seasonal deal? Both. <laughs> <laughs> um, we we made it. We sold it out in forty five minutes. I haven't tried minutes. it. I, I was I was I, I will be ashamed to say it's really, I was sitting there today and I was looking at the bottom like uh, I should try it because the dude's gonna be on my no. Podcast. That's all good. We uh, just because of the name, we've decided that that's going to be a Halloween release. Yeah, and so okay. We, we released it. It, on, it is thematically yeah. Halloween-ish. So we had our first release uh, this October twenty seventh or whatever it was. Yeah, and uh, it was it's the whiskey's really good and it was well received. We'll have another release in um, October of twenty three. May I can't remember. Maybe another one in twenty four, and then there's a three year gap. Okay. And and the reason for that is. We, you know, we, you pointed out we only use 10% of our acres. Yeah. But when we start growing these heirloom things, um, we have to make sure that we, we identity preserve them. We have to make sure they don't cross pollinate with, with our corn or the neighbor's yellow corn. So a lot of these things are, you'll see 10, 15 acre fields planted in the middle of a soybean field because corn pollen drifts between 30 and 60 feet. And so if we're growing blood red kernels of corn and that pollen crosses the road and goes into Greg's field across the road and now he's he's harvesting corn and taking it to the grain elevator and he's got blood red stuff that's going in there they're going to what the hell is this we're not accepting it so we have to be stewards of our neighborhood as well to make right. sure that this stuff is and so we only have so much time for farting around in the spring so we do a maximum of three of what we call our artisan series corn to make sure that that uh, the farm can continue to function as it needs to speaking of varietals of corn uh, I see your your blue popcorn in front of us, and I can't wait to try it. And I don't know if I have everyone's glass is ready, but we'll go ahead and try that next. And I'll pose this question: I'm unfamiliar with a lot of types of corn. I know I grew up in Jersey; it was like Silver Queen, and there were some funky names. You guys do the the Bloody Butcher, the the blue popcorn, even glass corn. Um, what would be your top three? varietals of of corn and and why well so you and i talked about my kids earlier right yeah and uh i have i have twins i love them equally every day but i like one better from one day to the next and i'll say that same answer regarding the corn that we use or the whiskey that we make from that corn that we use is it's it's time and place you know there's really special stuff out there all that sort of canned answer being said my personal favorite that I'm most proud of is is the blue popcorn. Really? And and honestly, it's it's sort of a self-serving answer. Is this was my baby? Um, again, I brought him up three or four times now. I'll bring him another time. Dave Pickerel. I was on the phone with Dave one time, and this was like in the infancy of our. This would have been April first of like 2015, and I was on the phone with Dave. I was doing all of distilling at the time, and he and I talked more than my wife. At that time, you know, I'd call, Dave, I screwed this up. How do I fix it? Or Dave, I did this right. How do I repeat it? 
and I was having one of those conversations, and a buddy of mine from Western Illinois calls me, and, and his name is Andy. I call him Popcorn Andy because he grows this specialty popcorn on his family farm, and, and um, one of the things that he grows is this blue popcorn. And, and, and the name blue popcorn, and, and I'm not to interrupt you, but like in my head I'm thinking popcorn. It's popcorn. Like you can straight up take the kernels and pop it. Got it. Yes. Okay. And and so Andy calls me, and while I'm on the you know I had this call waiting moment, and I said, Dave, how do you make bourbon from popcorn? And he just kind of laughs because he knows that we're always looking for this, and and he says, I don't think it's ever been done before. So I wrapped up my call with Dave. I called Andy back and I said, Andy, can you get me some seed? And he kind of paused for a minute. I said, I'm not I'm not going to be in the popcorn business. I want to try to make whiskey from it. Because it was early April, he had it to me in a week, and we planted it that spring. Harvested that fall and made one or two barrels from it. And the moment we distilled, the first drop came off, we went, this is special. <laughs> this is special. So every year we've scaled it. And, you know, because we have to, you know, there's several steps in our learning process here. It's not, we don't just buy grain and make whiskey. We have to first make sure we can grow it. You know, can we harvest it? Can we distill it? Can we sell it? <laughs> and so we have to scale into all this stuff. So we have been been scaling it. We, you know, I don't know the exact numbers, but say year one we made two barrels, year four we made four barrels, year three we made eight barrels. This year, 2022, blue popcorn will represent just shy of 20% of our distillation. Wow. So we and there's 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 not a distiller in the planet that's doing it with us. Yeah, I bring up the goat, which is the restaurant in Batavia, Illinois, and what used to be Oak and Swine. And I remember when it was Oak and Swine, they had they were a big fan of the blue popcorn. Yep. They they definitely were like, hey man, have you tried this? Do you want this? And uh, we're gonna go ahead and, and pour some. I've pre-poured you. Pre-poured me. You're right in front there. Speaking of favorite children, and I know it's hard because you have twins. But speaking of the bottles, if you were to pick your favorite expression from Whiskey Acres, your go-to, your, I had a long day, let me pour myself a three ice cube, three finger pour, because that's your, your go-to. That's my go-to. Um, it's the maple cask. Yeah? Yeah. Because there's a lot of whiskey in that drink. You know, there's there 115 proof. It does not taste like there's a lot of whiskey in that drink. And uh, and it gets you, you know, both sides of that, you know, the savoriness from the whiskey and that sweetness from the, the maple. You know, that's, I, maybe I shouldn't call it my favorite as much as it's the best coping with life whiskey that I have. <laughs> like the, yeah. Yeah, let me, let me pour this and forget whiskey. <laughs> that's right. So the, the blue popcorn, the, the whole point of what we call our artisan series is to showcase that corn matters. Yeah. And the, the, most of our peers in the whiskey world are buying grain. I mean, your, your logo, and, and yeah. by the way, I haven't said this yet, but your shirt is amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Drink local. It's got the, the logo with the corn shaped like a yeah. bottle and, with, with the husks and, on it. And the Sharpie stain from and one the of my Sharpies. kids. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like John Deere, John Deere red and, uh, uh, green and, and yellow, like yeah. a, it's a farm yeah, it, I, I want one. Um, this is a one-of-a-kinder, actually. Is I, it? I need to get a mass-produced. Yeah, is. absolutely. <laughs> I, I got a buddy in Jersey who would love that. Um, but, yeah, no, it, it's it, – it, I need to find that – is that maple bourbon? It's, it's bourbon, right, not rye? 
it's, it's made from bourbon. Okay. Yeah. And, and just the reason I, I sort of I'm careful in the way I talk about it is I we talk about my job and what I do. One of the things I do is all of our, our labeling and submission with the government. When we take that bourbon and put it into a maple syrup bourbon barrel, the government no longer allows me to call it bourbon. Right, because you're using a you're not using yep. an uh, a brand new charred oak. Yep. Barrel. And, and yeah. so so it is quote and I said it earlier bourbon whiskey finished in a maple syrup cask Got unquote. It. Got and, it. And so I, just, I whether I could ever get my my uh, rear end in trouble with that or not I, I don't know but no I but that makes like sense. I mean fully everybody who's a bourbon fan. Yeah. has the ABCs in their head, yeah. and they'll recite it to you yeah. immediately. Just, the the <laughs> bottled and bond people are fanatics. Yes. Well, wait a second. You can't call this bottled and bond because blah, blah, blah. You know, same thing with bourbon. I've seen a bourbon from Texas that called it bourbon, but it is like, it's like a honey bourbon. I'm like, that's, you're using ingredients that, yeah. that, you sh- that is not your essentials. That's the E. Yeah, right, right, right. So that is not bourbon theoretically, but like you said, it it is bourbon in the barrel. It but was it, bourbon. It, it was bourbon. <laughs> was past yeah. tense, folks. Oh wow. Yeah, no, I, and I can't wait to try that. Speaking of creations, uh, do you have any upcoming projects, special releases, or any new additions that we should be excited for? Yes. So, just today, other things I'm doing. We're gonna we're coming out with um, to kind of build on the uh, the maple cask. We've got a lot of partners that we're working with for we're kind of trading barrels back and forth. So we're gonna have a, a formal what we call a whiskey acres cask finish series. Okay. Um, so we're working with um, oh the the winery in Roselle, Linford Winery. We've got one of their uh, hogsheads. From a red wine barrel, and we're finishing a bourbon in that. We've got a, a cognac cask from Ooh. from uh, somewhere in Europe. We've got a, um, I think a port cask. So we're, we're not going crazy with this. No, but, but it's a little but, fun. And then we've got a few breweries that we're going to trade barrels back and forth with. You know, I know you, you talk with the guys from from Chattanooga. They're doing that. And, yeah. And so we, we're gonna we're gonna have a bottle that's sort of a. A template that's like Whiskey Acres Cask Finish Series, and then there'll be like a sticker on the shoulder that's like specific about here's the proof, here's the story, you know, because we screen print all of our, all of our bottles, so we have to be kind of vague on a on a label of, of that's screen printed that we can supplement the information with a sticker. So we're gonna we're gonna kind of launch a little bit of our Casks Finish Series in 2023. We'll have another release of our uh, Bloody Butcher in 23. We're actually gonna launch a um, a seven-year, 107-proof bourbon Ooh. Uh, in July Yes, of, of you, have, this year. you have my number. Let me know <laughs> when that comes yeah. out. That, that sounds appetizing. Yeah, that, and, and, and that kind of falls into what we talked about is it, are you, as you progressed with your, your barrel program, you're going to have these, these higher-aged, the higher longer-aged uh, barrels coming out, yeah. right? So you have your seven, and then you you have some in we, stock we, we for. Have, we have a couple that are you know barrel number one and number two are are still, you still know, cooking away. There. You know my the two barrels of my kids are still cooking away. You know we'll we'll have a few orphans that you know that sneak around, uh, batching. But you know to what I said earlier, we're we're really focusing on that four to six year space. We'll have some older stuff. 
Do you do a lot of, uh, I know a lot of companies around here, and especially what I've found uh, locally, is the Pride gas stations. They also have a liquor section, and they do barrel selects. Do you do barrel selects with, with certain folks or local areas? We do. Um, Pride needs to be something we, we actually we don't have any barrel select program with them. Uh, the first one that, that's probably the, the coolest is come to our visitor center. So we have what we call a distiller's reserve. I've heard about this. And uh, and so I've actually I've picked one. Uh, our master distiller, Rob Wallace, has one that's on the shelf right now. And basically it's anybody from the Whiskey Acres team who's involved in the process. So, you know, take a step back. When, when we have to fill an order or just fill bottles, um, let's just say I need 200 or 300 cases. And that's going to be like six to eight barrels. So we go out. And Rob looks at his calendar of, of how old things are, and he'll take samples from 20 barrels. Mm-hmm. We only need six, but he takes all of those and puts a blend together to make sure that we're getting consistency from one batch to the next. But when he's doing that, sometimes you'll pull a barrel and go, holy hell, this is too good to blend. Yeah. You know, that's what we call a honey barrel, but we, we literally we have a, we put a piece of painter's tape on it and put our name on it. If you're the guy who found it and you don't want this, you put your, put your name on it. And uh, so that becomes part of our, our, our um, Distiller Reserve series that, uh, that we do. And that's exclusive to and, your visitor and center. And that's exclusive to what we do for our visitor Which center. is at uh, 11504 Kesslinger? Kesslinger Road. Yeah. Uh, DeKalb, Illinois. DeKalb, Illinois. And, but we have, we have a really wonderful single barrel program with Binnie's. You mentioned Reams earlier. Uh, yeah, they picked a fantastic barrel from us. Uh, Stu Reams, Reams is fantastic. Yeah, to begin uh, with. Um, our friends from um, the Lodi Tap House, mm. Obscurity Brewing, they've they've got a barrel. Obscurity is is, is phenomenal. Yes. We went in there just recently, and I was we we're talking. I think it might have been even the last episode. I was talking to somebody. I'm, Dude, you walk in there, you just you get the meat sweats right away as soon as you walk yeah. in. It yeah. is like you just stuck your head in a smoker and shut it. Yep. Um, High V usually has a single barrel. Woodman's usually has a single barrel from us. Okay. So we've got you know a fairly Some barrel. barrel picks. We're, we're you know we're probably doing fifteen or twenty a year. Yeah. We'd probably like to do thirty to forty a year. Um, you know we're still in that stage where we what is it? You got to be thirty miles away to be an expert, mm-hmm. right? And and so we're local. But I think sometimes we might be too local for people to truly appreciate what we're doing and what we have to offer. Uh, but I think people. I think are, folks, uh, my personal opinion, talking to neighbors and friends around here, people uh, underestimate, I feel. Uh, they, they, they see Whiskey Acres, they think local, they don't think Kentucky, they, they don't, but they don't realize that the product that you guys are putting out is. If you were to blind taste them, they'd have no idea. No idea. And if not, it would they would be like, wow, this is phenomenal. I mean, <laughs> last turf we had, we had a bunch of guys here in a back patio, and we were smoking cigars. I, I put a, uh, a bottle of local bourbon. It wasn't yours. I'm sorry. But it was a local whiskey, and I won't say. But I put it in a fancy decanter, and I'm like, oh, yeah, no, here's some bottles. Oh, and there's a fancy decanter there. Go ahead and try that. And everyone tried it. I'm like, oh, this is great. This is great. Like, oh, and by the way. You, you blind tasting yep. you had no idea that this this stuff right here is probably the cheapest bottle that that or you know and locally owned locally sourced right. and so it's one of those things where people need to uh explore 
and, well, and they, try. You know, we talked about it earlier. Some of people's first try with us with was with a two-year-old 15-gallon barrel. You know, thank you for trying it. Yep. That was six years ago. <laughs> you know, that's it. Yeah. No. I mean, I, that, that, yeah. That was. Yeah. Our audience is showing you the bottle that we got. Yeah. It, it was. Uh, and they didn't even make that one. Just by the way, that's sourced. Oh, is it? Yeah. That's MGP whiskey. Oh, is it? Yes. Just why it's so cheap. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, I, I know them well. Yeah. You know, I don't, but yeah. just, just as an FYI, yeah. that is uh, well-sourced, inexpensive whiskey. Segwaying into the future. Uh, whiskey Acres, 10 years, where do you see it? Our goal is to build this business in a way that if our kids want to be involved, they can. Yeah. You know, So we're often asked, are you going to sell? Are you going to sell? We're building this, this in a way that it will be available to support the next generation you know if the right partner came along and saw the potential of us you know we're not planning to walk away but if, if there was an opportunity to scale with somebody we talk but that's not what we think about every day we yeah. think about every day of what can we do to build this so that when my kids and jamie's kids want to think about coming back it's there in a way that they can grow what dad's built kind of go with the the generation i mean that is what I feel what I read and what I see Whiskey Acres is a, a generation owned type of farm and, and business. And to have not only you involved, Jim and Jamie, it is one of those things where you, it is a passed down company. I mean, I, I would love to see, if, you know, how it progresses as the new generation comes in and has a say. If you want to, you want to know, um, I know I'm on a good start of at least teaching my kids. Is a couple weeks ago, I was giving them um, uh, hot apple cider for breakfast. And uh, my son takes a sip. He goes, Daddy, why does this taste like whiskey? What I didn't realize is it had fermented. <laughs> so so at, at the age of five, he, had, he's he knows already, what whiskey he knows tastes what like. Whiskey tastes that's like. great. <laughs> start him young, I guess. And, uh, but the, yeah, and then I had that moral dilemma of do I let him finish it? You know, send him to kindergarten <laughs> that way. Up it something. wasn't that much, but, but I, I was I was like, how many other five year olds would be able to identify, you know? And, this and it's like really whiskey. funny, it, you know, we yeah. we're not letting our kids drink, but they no. daddy can have a dip, you know, a little finger dip. and yeah. and I think that's very important for us as, you know, my house, my my truck, the back of my truck is constantly filled with whiskey, and I Your think truck is in my, in my driveway, is, so right I'll there. be yeah. right back. Yeah, let's go right. <laughs> but it, I th it's important for us to, to not make them fearful of it, but to respect it, to appreciate it, to to not be that that kid that's yep. that's um, you know, and also know that like when their friends come over to visit, we're gonna we're gonna be responsible adults and children grown yeah. in a in a certain culture, learn to respect that's, and an and an honor that 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 culture, yeah. and I mean same thing with uh, you know guns and yep. whiskey and whatever the case may be you're grown in that that culture you're you learn to appreciate and also respect at the right. same time um our good friend tyler plays locally at your visitor center quite often he, he, he plays he here at my 40th birthday party at my house yeah i call him i call him tyler dylan and i think he <laughs> liked it the dude sounds like he he could be related but uh, do you have any other uh, guest artist uh, events coming soon to the distillery that people can check out? Coming soon to the distillery. So, you know, I tell you that, that we do just about everything. I'm blessed or we're blessed we have an events manager now. So 
top of my head, the one thing I can think of is that we have a, a we call a, a holiday dinner on the 15th. Okay. Chef Rudy, Chef Rudy Galindo, um, just a fantastic, he'll, he'll do, he'll cater your dinner at your house and do a cooking class, but he'll also do pop-ups. Um, I think it's, I think it's next Wednesday. <coughs> um, and then there's a couple nights of live music. And to be honest with you, December 24th, 25th, January 30th, I should say December 31st and January 1, we're closing. Yeah. Uh, we, we just want to give holidays. It's, you know, you could go about it one way or the other. You could, you could say it's, it's Christmas Eve or it's New Year's Eve and we're going to blow it out. We're doing shit all year long. Yeah. We need we need to give ourselves and our yep. our staff time to be with their family and have a few days just not think about it. Yeah, and, 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 and that falls under the whole like I got trucker friends, so respect your truckers, respect your farmers, and uh, respect your your military. But uh, it, those are the three that you can't not uh, you know give homage to. And so for the folks who are farming like you guys, uh, you know, hats off. Um, it, it is one of those things where. If you want to take a couple days, <laughs> take a couple days, man. <laughs> you know, th- but to answer your question, uh, whiskeyacres.com backslash events, we usually do a pretty good job of keeping things updated there as well as yeah. whiskeyacres.com backslash food trucks. Um, usually April 1. You guys get food trucks coming in, right? April 1st. Have you had or, the, the pierogi person come in? I haven't yet. I oh haven't been able to get them. Phenomenal stuff. Uh, I would take them in a heartbeat. Yeah. We've, we've had... Yeah, uh, uh, they're in Batavia bunch. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, yeah, you, you know, uh, we've had a ton, you know, maybe the most exciting one that comes is the, uh, the lobster roll truck. Oh, uh, they come out there, but we, we got a, you know, um, a lot of places do pop-ups, um, you know, lots of taco trucks. South moon does some, some barbecue for us out there. It's, uh, one thing we don't want to do is have a restaurant, yeah. but we also recognize that we need to have, yep. you know, some food options. So, but we're, we get slow, you know. January, February, March slows down, so we can't ask a food truck to come out there and serve to twenty people. We sure. got we got menus, Uber Eats, people deliver to us. But come spring, fall, summer, uh, we have got a ton of options and have a ton of fun. And folks, check out Whiskey Acres at your local brick and mortar, or ask them at your ask for it at your local bar and restaurant. You can see them at the uh, like I mentioned, eleven five zero four Kesslinger Road, in the the Cal, Illinois. Um, you can call them at eight four 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 whiskey, which is a great number. How did that was that well, was, was great number together? It was I was like it's eight four 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 whiskey, which is four nine four four seven five three. So basically, the Y is irrelevant, but it works. <laughs> <laughs> or you can go to uh, info at, or you can e- email them if you want to know about uh, information. Uh, info at whiskeyacres.com. You know what's funny though is. All that goes right to me. I've probably gotten seven emails. So you can <laughs> you can email Nick at info. Yeah, pretty much it. <laughs> Man, uh, this this is great. Uh, I appreciate everything. Um, I believe our time is coming down to a nub here. Uh, Nick, oh. thanks for for taking the time. I know you're a busy man. Uh, the whiskey is outstanding. I appreciate uh, our listeners. Uh, if you're listening, get a glass, experience it, please. Uh, Until the next time we put smoke in the air, stay safe, stay smoky, and stay classy. Folks, we'll see you next time here at the Cigar Social Podcast. Mm -hmm.